We're going to finish the uh, series we've been in on the good life, and I want you to turn to the last chapter of Job today, Job 42. If you're using the book rack Bible there, uh, page 841, you can uh, take out your outline that you picked up on your way in. You'll find that outline also on the Three Crosses app. That's a handy way to take some notes. I hope you've enjoyed this series as much as I've enjoyed it. It's been really great to think about wisdom, to try to apply wisdom to our lives. And we've been rehearsing, you know, all the different aspects of wisdom from the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then in Job. So I'm not going to take a lot of time to rehearse all of that and remind us today the, dif- the, you know, the, differenti- the difference between those three books and their per- perception of wisdom, what they give to us. But what I want to focus in on today is just the fact of what Job ultimately teaches us, what, what Job teaches us about wisdom, and that is this, that no matter what's going on in our lives, good or bad, we can trust God because He's sovereign and He's always good. Now just let that sink in for just a minute. No matter what's going on in your life, good or bad, you can trust Him because He's sovereign and He's always good. Now, like someone has said, he's not always safe. <laughs> Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, you know. It doesn't always feel safe, doesn't always feel right, but we can trust God because he's always good and he's sovereign. Has everything in control. And that's what we're going to see today in the book of Job here in chapter 42, this last chapter of the book. So let's read it, follow along as I read. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died, old and full of years. Hmm. 
Well, I'm glad for that chapter, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, if you've been walking through the book of Job, I mean, that's a great chapter to be in. Because it, it brings some resolve to the tension we've been in for the last five weeks in this book. And the tension is not resolved by God explaining anything to Job. That's the weird thing. No explanation, but the tension is resolved by what happens to Job post his suffering. And that's what we want to key in on this morning, because some of us are in places of suffering in our lives. Some of us are in acute suffering. We don't know of a, of a worse time of our lives than we are in right now. And I want to give you hope today by what I see here in Job 42 as what can and often does happen on the backside of suffering. You maybe will never get an explanation from God, but this passage to me gives encouragement and hope of what can happen because God is sovereign and he's always good. And that's what we want to look at. Four words this morning, four portraits, four pictures. If you're taking notes, I want you to see them. The first one comes out of verses one through six, and that is that there's a picture of transformation here. I love this word transformation, and we use it a ton around here. It's part of our purpose statement, life transformation through following Christ. You know, and sometimes we say it so much it becomes just kind of like a statement. I guess the question I want to ask you is, are you being transformed? Is there a transformation going on in your life today because you're following Jesus Christ? There should be. There ought to be. And that's what I see here as the first word of hope that comes out of this passage. Specifically, there are a couple of things that shows us what transformation looks like, and I want to highlight them to you here in verses 1 through 5. And that is the first one here in verses 1 through 5. That there's this, Transformation is marked by knowing something about God, knowing God in a way that is apart from just mere rationality or just something that uh, comes from reason. I know some of us think that the most important thing in our lives is to understand precepts from the Bible, and I, I'm not going to fuss with that. I mean, it's, there's nothing more advantageous for us to know the truth, but there's actually something better that we discover here from Job that is beyond just knowing something up in your head. Pastor Buzz talked about this last week. It was great. He took us into 42 last week, and that was a great way to see what this transformation is about, because what Job experiences here that we're hearing from his words in verses 1 through 5 is that he caught something that he couldn't have got out of a textbook or he didn't necessarily get because he listened to a sermon or that he sat in church all his life. He got something that was more intrinsic, something far more intuitive. And this is what shows us, I think, a beautiful thing about what God can and does often do. Now, if you study the book of Job, you see back in chapter 13, Job gets really close to this, this, intuit, this intuition of God or this understanding of who he is apart from mere reason. Uh, we see this in chapter 13, verse 15. Uh, you can turn back there if you want to, but I'll just read it. Job says this amazing word, though he slay me, yet I will what? You know the verse. I will trust him, yeah. Though he slay me, I will trust him. Now that sounds... That sounds pretty intuitive. Like, God, you can do whatever you want with me, and I'm still, I'm still leaning in. I'm still trusting you. That's a beautiful thing. But if you continue reading where Job is in 13 there, he goes on and he says, I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man will dare come before him. And then we hear Job kind of make a deal with God. He says, 
He says in verses 20 and 21, he says, Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. <laughs> so Job, even though he says, though he slay me, I will trust him, Job is bringing his grocery list to God. He's saying, God, I'm going to trust you, but here's the things you need to do if I'm going to keep trusting you. And that's the way we are sometimes. We're, we're pretty good at bargaining with God. Um, I talked to a guy yesterday who's dying of, of cancer, and he said his brother, who is not a Christ follower, and this, one, this gentleman is, he said, my brother said, if God healed me, he would go to church for the rest of his life. <laughs> you know, we do, we do, you know, we barter with God about things. And that's because we like to feel that somehow we've got some control in the matter. But the thing that Job understands, the thing that we need to understand, is that there's something better than just having a head knowledge about God that even gives us what we think is permission to sort of barter with him about things going on in our lives. Like, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. And we need, we need to come to a place like Job, and this is the grace of God that brings us to this place where we just implicitly and explicitly trust him no matter what. Why? Because... He's sovereign, and he's good all the time. And that's what Job comes to here. It's amazing to me. I love a couple places in the New Testament, and you know these verses. You know when Paul was praying for the Ephesians, and he says in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, and I pray that you might know the love of God, the love that surpasses knowledge. There it is. A love that surpasses knowledge. Ephesians 3.19. This is the prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Ephesians. A love that surpasses knowledge. Is that the kind of love that we have? A love that we understand that comes from God that is not book understanding? Not just precepts and principles of understanding, but we know that we know that we know. You know, later in the book of Philippians, Paul writes to them and he, and he also reminds them, he says, you know, first of all, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything with prayers and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And then it says, and the peace of God, which transcends understanding. There it is again. You see, it's a grace of God when he gives us love and peace that doesn't come from mere rationality, just knowing the precepts, just understanding biblical truth. And this is the gift of God to those of us who belong to him. He wants to give us a sense of his love and peace that is apart from, not always disengaged, principles are great, understanding is great, rationality is great, but he wants to give us love and peace apart from those things too. And that's a great thing. You know, we have a little grandson, his name is Jack, he's about a year old. And, uh, you know, he's just a precious little guy. But, you know, he, he decided that he was not going to crawl. He just went from sitting there to walking, you know. And so what he loves to do when he comes over and we have the privilege of, of watching him is we walk him around. He loves to walk around. And I have to admit, he loves to walk around with my wife more than he walk, walks around me. But anyway, it's a little bit of a sore subject. But the, the, the point is... He loves to walk around, and, and he's, he's got to have a hand because, yeah, he's a year old, and we've seen one-year-olds literally running, you know, so he's, he's not quite, you know, far enough along to do that, but if he holds your hand, he's okay. 
and he just wants to walk and walk and walk. And Carla the other day was saying, you know, gee, Jack, I'm going to break my back walking around with you because it's, you're stooped over the whole time. <laughs> but, you know, if you let go of his hand, you know, he suddenly gets all, you know, kind of prickly and weird and, and he just doesn't like that. But if your hand is in his hand, he's okay. Everything's fine. The world is in order. Everything's perfect. And as I was watching that the other day, I thought, you know, that's, that's a beautiful picture of my relationship with God, our relationship with God. That when we know that his hand is in ours, we can walk anywhere. There's something intrinsic about it. We, we know that we are going to fall without him. But when he's with us, when we know he's with us, it just transforms our lives. It just makes all the difference. And it's this underlying truth that we can't necessarily explain all the time, that we can't necessarily rationally tell others about. But when we know that we know, we know. And it's beautiful. I feel for people in the world that just don't have that intuition because they don't belong to the Savior. And there's never been a time in their lives where they just know that they know that God is walking hand in hand with them. And that's what Job came to understand. He came to see this. I love Psalm 131. It's just three verses long. We'll put it on the screen. Let's read it out loud. Can we do that? Is it there? Yeah. Let's read it. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forever. That's a beautiful picture of what Job is showing us here. Job says, you know, he says, I, I, I've heard of you, but now I see you. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I, I've gone from a rational understanding of who you are, God, to an experience that I can't even fully grasp. And that's a gift of grace. The gift of transformation. And I hope all of us, all of us are experiencing that kind of transformation in our lives. I was over visiting my neighbor Scott the other day. Scott is dying of a, a lung disease that has hardened his lungs. And doctors gave him about five years. And I think he's in year eight or nine so God's been very gracious to him in providing health and strength for a long, long time, longer than doctors have given. But here he is. I mean, he, he's not here. He's not been here for a while. Bless Carla. They sit right over there. Uh, they're not here today. Carla's home taking care of Scott. And many of you, I've seen people come in and out. Many of you have been helping. It's a beautiful thing. I'll talk about that in a minute. But I was just over there the other day and, and just spending time and... and, and Here's what Scott, you know, Scott is just, he's laboring to breathe. He's got a mask and the tubes in his nose. And he's still just, he's panting. It, looks, it feels like he's just run a mile and he's trying to get his breath. And I think he's been doing this for months. He's under hospice care now. And it's just a crazy thing. But between his breaths, and I try not to have him say too much, I just go in there and talk for a minute and pray with him. But he says, I know God is good. I know he's keeping me around here for a reason. That's, that's the intuitive transformation of God's love and peace no matter what. 
That's transformation. That's hope. Aren't you glad? Here's another thing I see there quickly, and that is this transformation is not only marked by a knowledge of God that is beyond uh, uh, reason, but it's also marked by true humility in the presence of God. Look at verse 6. Job says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Uh, this is not self-loathing. This is just real. When you get a beautiful glimpse of who God is in your life, guess what? It reduces you. When you see God for who he is, we are reduced to see us for who we are. And that's why when we get close to God, we should always have, I mean, if you, here's, here's one of the greatest qualities of knowing that you're getting close to God. There's a lot of repentance going on in your life. You know, people that don't understand repentance, you know, like, my way doesn't work, God, I'm such a sinner, I, I, you know, my thoughts, my actions, my words, I mean, just, it just becomes an apparent reality to us. The closer we get to God, the closer we get to our Lord Jesus, the more aware we are of our sinfulness. And so if, if there's no awareness of sinfulness in your life, there's no awareness of missing the mark before God, then the transformation is just kind of dripping right now for you. It's just not really that strong. And, and because transformation is a gift of grace, I guess I can just say, would you just lean into that and, and ask the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to expose you more to who he is, the brilliance of his light, the beauty of his light, so you see yourself the way you should be seeing yourself. And again, that's not self-loathing. It's just seeing who we are. And we can be quite content and happy in knowing that even though we're sinners, God loves us this much. Everything in Scripture just explodes when we see the love of God in spite of who we are. And then we don't become judges of others because we're so focused on, look at all the work that God still needs to do in our lives. Right? All right. So God opposes the proud, 1 Peter 5, 5, James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that a great verse? You're looking for grace? You're looking for transformational grace in your life? Then, you know, get off the horse, the high horse, and, and uh, see the Lord and revel in his love for you in spite of who you are. <laughs> this is the great love of God. So there's a picture of transformation. Secondly, there's a picture of reconciliation here, verses seven through nine. And this is very hopeful for those of us who have been through suffering, and especially when our suffering has been sort of uh, compounded because of the foolishness of others around us. There might be people in your life, family members, a spouse, might be somebody that is very close to you who have sort of heaped a lot of uh, uh, dirt onto your suffering. And maybe they didn't know they were doing it, they were trying to help, Miserable comforters, you know, we studied that passage, where people come alongside, they're trying to help us, but they're really not. Um, and, and I love this, a couple things I just point out, verse 7, first of all in reconciliation, God throws the flag, um, and you see that in verse 7, he, the Lord, after the Lord said these things to Job, which is actually referring, because Job's been talking up to this point, this is referring to God, God's explanation of the universe to Job, and after Job, after God said these things to Job, he goes to Eliphaz and he says, I'm angry with you guys. Now, God throws the flag. And here's, here's the little thing, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but you know, I, I know a lot of times when we feel wrong by people and we, you know, 
we're wondering what should come next. We feel like we're the ones that need to go set people straight. Have you ever felt that way? And you lay awake at night thinking about that. You've got an argument set. The next time I see this person, bang, 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 bang. You know, we're going to, we're just going to riddle them down to the ground. But you know what this verse gives me hope for? Verse 7, it tells me that, you know, God's better at reprimanding than we are. And why don't we just let God do the reprimanding more in our lives? Now, there's nothing wrong with exhortation. Sometimes we have to confront. Yes, those are things that we are called upon as Christians to do. But when we've been wronged by our fellow brothers and sisters or people very close and dear to us, it's probably more insightful to let God do the heavy lifting there. And notice that God not only throws the flag, but verses 8 and 9, God prescribes restitution. God put it on the hearts of these guys and the biblical word for that is conviction, by the way. Um, you can't make that happen. And I'm sure when Job was sitting there in his suffering and misery, he was shocked when his friends show up at the door with, with this offering. And if this is during the patriarchal period, um, we don't know how much of the, the offering system, you know, the sacrificial system was codified by this time. But nevertheless, they got the message that they better do something and they went to Job to make amends. And that, there's just such a different experience when the people that have wronged you actually come to you and say, you know, I was out of line. You know, it sort of diffuses everything, doesn't it? When people just would admit to something like that. But when we go to them and say, look, I know you didn't see it this way, but you were out of line. That usually doesn't go that well. But when God puts it in the heart of somebody, it, it's just a whole different experience. And I've been on both sides of that thing before. I've, I've been on the side of going to people where God convicted me to say, I was just way out of line there. And when I go to them, I'm feeling like they're going to just chop my head off. As soon as I share like how out of line I was and how I should have handled this differently, it's just like all the tension's gone. It's like, ah, it's all right. Hugs, kisses, love, you know? Most of the time. Not always. But I've been on the other side of that too where people have come to me and said, you know, I gave you a hard time about this and man... The Lord has done a work in my heart. And, and that's just, a, you know, there's just nothing more beautiful than seeing that kind of reconciliation happen. Um, which brings us to the third thing, and that is that there's a picture of restoration here. A picture of restoration. So we see transformation, reconciliation. Now there's this picture of restoration and uh, verses 10 through 15, this is amazing. I see four things in here about restoration. Because some of us are, we don't know it, but we're nearing to getting to the other side of a suffering season in our life. Or maybe if we're even in the thick of suffering, I want you to see these as really hopeful encouragements to you. First of all, uh, sometimes it needs to start with us. It often starts with us. Notice in verse 10, it says, verse 10a, it says, after Job had prayed for his friends. Now, up to this point, Job's still in the same situation. Job is still in ashes. Job is still suffering. Job has got all kinds of problems. But there's no indication from the text that Job has actually in any way been restored. But Job prays for his friends. And the Lord heard his prayer. And the Lord blessed those relationships. There's something else there. Notice all these blessings that start pouring in on Job's life. 
the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Here's a little principle I hope you'll take to heart. We should always view God's blessings in the aftermath of suffering as merely gifts of grace, not a reward, not a reward for what we've endured. Uh, whatever blessing comes out of our suffering is not intended to be like a, a good job, you know, like, like here comes your reward. No, it's just a gift of God's grace. Because if Job suffered not as punishment, he should not expect his reward or the blessings to be reward. Get it, right? Both are gifts from God. Whether good or bad, we can trust God because he is sovereign and he is always good. And so, careful how you interpret things in your life. Careful how you see blessings in your life. Don't look at blessings and say, wow, God, I'm glad you finally saw how faithful I've been to you. <laughs> no. God wants us to say, wow, God, thank you for your amazing blessing no matter what. No matter how I've been or no matter how I've responded to you. Number three, I see here in this passage, verse 11, that community is often a means for rebuilding and restoring what's been lost. Uh, I've not seen this before. I've read the book of Job a few times. But I love the fact in verse uh, 11 that it says, all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house and they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him something, a piece of silver and a gold ring. You know how Job accumulated more things and God prospered him again? Through community. Now, that struck me because I think there's a lot of people, this goes back to sort of the online Christians, you know, people that profess a relationship with Jesus but never are around God's people and don't think that being with God's people is important. I see this as sort of the, uh, just an a in-your-face reminder that we're not restored apart from community. We need community in our lives. We need people that know us and we know them. This is the way God designs it, and that's why it's so important that we gather in this place. That's why we are here today. It's out of community that these beautiful things happen. Job's real wealth, watch this, was in his community. That's where his wealth was. And lastly, there's a fourth thing here, that restoration often initiates fresh, bold ministry initiatives. Now, I know this might feel like a little bit of a stretch, but I see verses 14 and 15 here, and I see that nowhere in all the land were found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. The reason I bring that out, you wouldn't see that through a casual reading of it, but in the patriarchal period, uh, this, this is so radical that women were included in the inheritance. So out of Job's suffering, there's this, this bold new... And whoever was writing the book of Job wanted us, the readers, to know that God had done such an amazing work in restoring Job, and not just restoring him, but doing something that was sort of unprecedented in bringing this beautiful, unprecedented uh, inheritance to the daughters of Job, the three daughters. I think there's an organization, Job's Daughters. Have you ever heard of it? You know, I don't know. I don't know where they get it from this, obviously. 
But I think it's an amazing thing that God, out of our suffering, will sometimes remind us that there's bigger things in store and there are things that we need to do maybe differently than we've done before. And maybe go in a new direction. And I don't know what God's laying on your heart to do. Um, but you should listen because when he gives it to you, uh, it's meant to bring you into a new place, a new place in your life. All right. Well, there's one last thing here I want you to see. There's a picture of transformation, reconciliation, restoration, but there's also a picture of satisfaction here that is so beautiful. Verses 16 and 17. After this, Job lived 140 years. Some commentators are not sure. Does it mean after his suffering or in all of this, Job lived 140 years? I don't know. Um, but here's what I want you to see if you're taking notes, that Job might be remembered for his suffering, but it's not what defined his life in the end. This is great news because some of us kind of go through our life and we, we hit this big pothole and we're sort of like, we're going to let that thing define our existence for the rest of our lives. And it's okay that there's a part in it, God's going to use it, but what I read from the last two verses of the book of Job is that it doesn't need to define my life. Job's life was better in the next season of his life. And look at the way it's described. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died full of years. The text tells us that Job lived 140 more years. I don't know. I mean, I only plan to live 130, so I don't know if, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Did you read in the paper the other day, a Holocaust victim, the oldest man in the world, 113, and he died. That blew my mind. 113? And he was still driving. No, no, he wasn't. <laughs> he was active right up to the end. It's amazing. Our days are in God's hands. But you know the thing that's amazing to me? Job lived, okay, so 70 years and then maybe another 140. So, or, uh, so one-third of his life, one-third of his life was all this kind of the remembrance of suffering, but it's not what defined his life. For another 140 years, in the patriarchal period, people lived a long time. Go back and read the book of Genesis, you'll see. 210 is not a record. Trust me on that. Can you imagine living 210 years? Okay. I love the fact that it says, and so he died full, old and full of years. You know what this means? It means where he wanted to go, he went. What he wanted to do, he did. And everything was complete. I guess that's the picture of satisfaction, isn't it? Pure, beautiful satisfaction. And only a life lived in the presence of God and the reality of the centerpiece of God being, or God being the centerpiece of our lives, only that kind of life can we have our life full of years and years full of life. I don't know how long you're going to live. God has, 139 Psalms says that every day of our lives are numbered before one of them come to be. You might live to be over 100, or you might die before you're 60. It's all in God's hands, isn't it? But you can have fullness of years if you live a life of wisdom. And that's what the book of 
Job is telling us is that we can trust God no matter what we are in because he is sovereign and he's always good. So choose a good life. It's a life of wisdom. Amen? Now today, if you don't know Christ, this is your opportunity to trust in Christ. You know, Job's friends saw Job as smitten from God, smitten of God. And Isaiah 53 says that we looked upon Christ as smitten by God. But no, he was an offering. He was one not being punished by God, but took the punishment that was meant for us when he died and rose again from the grave. And today, any person here, if you're sitting in the furthest seat, Jesus wants to come into your life and give you a brand new life and transform your life. You can start today.